Friends, we are indeed in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'm going to read for us just half of one verse, and we will not have time to mine the depths of what is here. But I want you to hear from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15a, and let this sink into our souls. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, this is supernatural. This is antithetical to anything it means to be a human being and preeminently an American human being, an individual with rights and freedoms and personal private property and privileges. This wars against those very things and we cannot change in our own strength and we need you. This is a place we come to the end of ourselves and we cry out, Spirit, change us. Change us by the gospel of grace to become these kinds of men and women in the church. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, in our house, we are learning the value of money. So we've got four kids and they're learning, but really the parents are learning. So we're teaching the kids so that we will learn the value of money. And one of the ways we do that, of course, is by an allowance. If you give a child a little bit of money and they begin to save, well, then they know that parents don't have this inexhaustible supply. We don't get to wave this little rectangle in front of cash registers and get whatever we want. There's a limit to this. And once you give kids money and they've got to save it, they start to notice those pesky little tags at the bottom of things with numbers on them. That's a price tag. That's what it costs. And you don't have close to that. So we as a family have had some lean years. We've been a seminary student. We've been missionaries in a third world country. We've been church planners. We, we know lean years. And so we like to say at the beginning of Christmas, this is going to be a big Christmas or a medium Christmas, or a small Christmas, and that just kind of sets the tone for the household, right? And by big, I mean like 50 bucks, or 30 bucks, or we're doing a $20 Christmas this year, and be grateful for it, you know? Just set the tone. So I'll never forget in 2015, um, Julie and I were saying to each other, we had our eldest son Judah, who's actually here in the back, eight years old at the time, and we thought, you know what? Let's do something crazy. Let's get him the Lego Millennium Falcon. Let's just do it. I mean, throw caution to the wind, pay that thing off for years. Let's just do it, you know. <laughs> We're doing it. So we do it, and, and he's opening up on Christmas morning, and we are rolling the film for Judah, and just the joy on his face grabs that thing, looks dead in the camera, and said, this thing costs $100. And he knew what that meant. And that was a beautiful, beautiful moment. Well, our text this morning is actually talking about the cost of things, the price of things, because twice Paul uses the verb for spending, depanao, when he says, I will spend and be spent for your souls. And actually, that brings up a fascinating question, which is going to sound heretical at first, but we're mostly friends here, and I think we can get through it without excommunicating anybody. 
But my question is, what does it cost to bring a soul to heaven? What does it cost to bring a soul to heaven? Now, before anybody hits me over the head with three of the five solas in Christ, by faith, by grace alone, we got that. I'm good with that. Let me heartily agree. There is an enormous cost to bring a sinful soul to blessed, eternal union with God, and that cost was born wholly, completely, beautifully, tragically on that weekend we just observed, Good Friday through Easter Sunday, we would not be here today, our churches would not exist today, there would be no hope today had we not heard that most blessed of pronouncements, it is finished. And should any man, woman, or child or angel come and try to add to the finished work of Jesus on the cross, Paul says in Galatians 1, God damn them. God damn them for that heresy. So, we're going to tread carefully, but we're going to press on because Paul, the same guy who's ready to curse angels, is the same person who's talking about spending on souls that are already bought. So what could he possibly mean? Now, I think we all intuitively know, even if we haven't gone deep in this in our studies in Paul, we intuitively know something of what he's saying. Surely he is saying that in God's sovereignty, he's designed the the Christian life and discipleship so that he gives the church, us, to bear the cost to bring his work to completion. His completed work, he gives us to bring it to completion, which is why Paul can say in the most ridiculous fashion in 1 Corinthians, We're God's co-workers. We join him to do what he has already done. And so to say it plainly, discipling a soul that is already bought is going to cost you and I something further. So I've got four points in 20 minutes on this spending. What it doesn't mean, what it does mean, why it's normal, and why it's glorious. So number one, what it does not mean. When we are asking the question, what does it cost you to bring a soul to heaven? What are the pains and costs and sufferings of a ministry that God has given us to endure? But before we sit here and start tallying up, you know, it does cost me a lot. And I do this and I do that and I spend myself here. Look again at what Paul is talking about when he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. The only cost we're adding up here is for souls. That's important because there's a lot of places to spend in ministry. There's a lot of places to spend our time and our energy and our money and our gifts and our strategizing and our session hours in ministry that aren't for the sake of another person's soul for God's renown. We can spend a lot of ourselves in ministry on other things, right? I'm not spending it for a soul and for God's renown. I'm spending myself to be liked and noticed by other people. Or I find myself spending a lot of energy to be needed in the church, right? 
I mean, how good does that feel when you show up as a minister in the right moment, at the right time, say the right word, and, and the marriage and the sinner and the unbeliever just needed that in that moment, and, and it just feels good to be needed. Or we can spend ourselves to do penance. I think some of the hardest workers in ministry have a secret sin they are compensating for. If I'm living a life of sin, I can double down in ministry as penance for that sin. Or I can spend myself in ministry as a way to escape. If I don't want to be home, if I'm not happy about my marriage and my family, or I've got other problems that I'm running from, I can invest time in ministry. If I use that time in substances or recreation, someone might come alongside and say, hey, brother, I mean, how many rounds of golf can you play in a week and still be a Christian? But if I give those hours to the church, I might not be rebuked. In fact, I might be congratulated. Ministry can be an escape. And then, of course, there is the ever-present temptation, the desire for Babel. I want to build something. I want to create something that I can put my name on that is going to last. So the hard truth is, not every hour we spend on the church's dime is in service to another soul for the sake of God's renown right? We cannot. Not every hour I spend is for the sake of another soul, for God's renown. And actually, the longer we're in ministry and the more God reveals our hearts to ourselves, we actually see an even darker truth. I'm not sure there's a single hour I spend in ministry on the church's dime that is not tainted by something of the above, some sin that reaches in and touches those deep places and I minister from that place. Lord, save us from this body of death. Save us from this body of death. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about spending for those things. We are talking about spending ourselves for another. Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Pastoring, ministering, evangelizing, discipleship is spending oneself for another soul, for God's glory, and there is a real cost to that work. I mean, think on that cost with me just a little bit. If we're not doing what we said this is not, if we're not airing our righteousness before others to be seen and celebrated by them, but I'm I'm genuinely seeking to be faithful in ministry, Think about the ways and means day after day, week after week, year after year. I'm giving myself away in a thousand places that I will never see paid back again in this life. There is a real cost to ministry. I see it on your faces. I see it when we meet together and fellowship with one another. There is a real cost to bear in ministry. If I disciple by teaching, if I disciple by teaching, oh, the ways I spend myself for teaching, the hours I spend in my study 
agonizing and pursuing and exegeting and following rabbit trails and having crises of convictions that my people will never see in the pulpit, they'll never see in a small group circle, but I will spend myself in those places that they won't see. And why is it, could somebody please tell me why it is that when I have my best material, my tightest sermon, my best exegesis, the illustrations are on point, I even have jokes, no one's there on Sunday, everybody's sick, everybody's on vacation, and I come back exhausted the next week with a half-baked sermon and the place is packed. Why is that? I am spending myself in teaching. Or if I spend myself discipling through shepherding, oh, the hours upon hours to shepherd and sit and counsel a soul. Coffees, lunches, beers, calls, texts, hospitality, hospital visits, house calls. You're being stood up. You're being lied to. You're being used as a crutch. You're being used because someone wants to do the talking and they want you to do the listening and there's no room to speak truth and love. And why is it that the person you invest the most time in will be the person at the end of the day that says, I wasn't shepherded, I'm going somewhere else? Oh, the hours, the hours spent in shepherding. Or if I disciple through governing, if I disciple the church through governing, I've seen the guy who wants to make everybody happy and he doesn't change anything and he moves so slowly and he just makes a ton of people upset. And then I've seen the leader that reacts against that and he makes hard, fast decisions and he shoots from the hip and he does what he wants to do and he makes a ton of people upset. So I'm gonna be here in the middle with a session. We're gonna pray about everything. We're gonna decide everything together. That's how we're gonna lead and I make a ton of people upset. Oh, the cost of discipling through government. And if I disciple through church discipline, there is a real and a bitter cost. Oh, brothers and sisters, to sit across the table from a soul and say, don't do this. Don't go there. Don't make that decision. Do you see I have the Bible in front of me? It's open. I beg you. I'm not telling you to do anything that God is not telling you to do. Do not do that. And when I bar the table and when we as the session remove your membership and you stomp out of here among friends and say that place is void of Jesus and of grace, oh, that is a bitter, bitter cup. Friends, there is real cost, real pain in ministry. Let's linger here. Do not rush from this place. I have a pastor friend who has himself mentored pastors for decades. And we were sitting together a while back and he was talking to me about pastoral ministry and what he sees in his counseling. And he said, you know, I'm watching a lot of guys burn out of ministry and here's the reason why. And before he answered, I could fill in that gap, right? Because we all know that people work too hard or they have a moral failure or they find a better vocational opportunity or they don't get paid enough. And that's why a bunch of guys leave ministry. And so I was ready for that answer. But he said, one of the reasons I see so many pastors drop out of ministry, get this, is because they don't mourn their losses. They take a hit, they take a loss, they put themselves out there, and when that pain happens, they just move on. 
Because when you're playing sports, you pay, play through the pain, right? You, you hurt something, you tweak something, the team needs you, the game needs you, you get in there, you play through the pain, but, but that's not how ministry works. And you can do that once, and you can do that twice, but you add those things up, and that's not a healthy place to be. If something hurts, the best counseling advice would say, slow down and dwell there. Spend some time there. One of the few places in the New Testament where that same Greek word, depanao, is used about spending is in the story in the Gospel of Mark of the bleeding woman. The text says when she had spent all that she had, she went and found Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Learn well this ministry prayer. Jesus, I'm spent. I gave everything. I'm spent. So that's what it's not. That's what it is. Let's talk about why it's normal. Is it normal? Should ministry be this hard? Should it cost this much? Which actually begs a bigger question that I've been chewing on as I've been working through Paul and reworking through Paul. I won't fully expand it here, but I'll just drop this question on you. Is Christian ministry, which is parallel to Christian living, is the Christian life more crucifixion or resurrection? Should the Christian life and should Christian ministry feel more like Good Friday or should it feel like Easter? Isn't that a great question? I'm really proud of myself. I think that's a great question. Y'all should write that down and tell me the answer. And you could cheat now and you could say, well, it's both. Well, it's already and not yet. Well, we know that what God has joined together in the empty tomb and the cross, don't, don't separate, and you would be superficially right and proud of yourself. But let's think a little bit deeper. Because for my money, the way I read Paul is that once we are raised from death to life, which is Easter, and we are seated in the heavenly places, which is Easter, and we are clothed with resurrection power in the spirit, which is Easter, well, then we get handed this cross and said, come follow me, which is Good Friday. I could read dozens of references in Paul to spending, laboring, not making use of my rights, knowing nothing except Christ and him crucified, filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ, being poured out like a drink offering upon the sacrifice of your faith, always caring about in the body the death of Jesus. Young ministers-to-be, do you want an Easter ministry? Do you want a resurrection ministry? It's gonna feel like Good Friday. It's gonna cost you something Dearly. A while back, I was hiking in the mountains, which I love to do once a month, get in the mountains, just like Jesus. And I was up in the upstate, and I got to move when I pray. And so I did a monster hike. It was like 12 miles. I'm up there sweating. I'm up there getting scratched and scrambling and bleeding. I come down hungry and exhausted, but it was worth it. I mean, I saw waterfalls and I saw sweeping views. I saw wildlife. I had precious time with the Lord. It was amazing, but it was hard. And I came down and I'm walking out that final path to the parking lot. And in comes this man who had just gotten out of his car from the parking lot. He's got like a t-shirt and shorts and flip-flops 
no pack, no water bottle, no nothing. And he stops me and says, hey man, how do I like, you know, see some views? And I wanted to say to him, see some views? How do you see some views? I just spent six hours up on that mountain. I sweat on that mountain. I bled on that mountain. I last a pack of Nutter Butters up on that mountain. And you come flip-flopping in here asking me about how to see some views. Man, the best view you're going to see today is me. I'm your best view that you will see. I didn't say any of that, but I said, go ahead. It's great. You know, enjoy yourself. But that's what I was thinking. Don't flip-flop into the church and say, hey, man, how do I, like, disciple some souls? You can't carry a cross in flip-flops. This is going to cost you something, and that's normal. So it's normal, but finally, it is glorious. This could quickly turn into a pastor's pity party, like woe is me. The ruling elders here, the guests here are rolling their eyes. The pastor always thinks he has the hardest job in the world. I do think a pastor has the hardest job in the world. And and we could lick our wounds together. And this could be a pity party about ministry weight, except Paul throws a word in here that is just dripping with gospel and it turns the whole thing on its head when he says about all this spending and giving himself away, I will most gladly, most gladly, not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not keeping a a record of wrongs or ministry debts that I have paid, I will most gladly, with absolute pleasure, run a hedonistic ministry in which I get the joy. How is that possible? How can Paul be glad to lose? How can he be glad to spend? How can he be glad to build a ministry he doesn't get to put his name on? How can he be glad to invest in things that he doesn't see a return on? How can Paul be glad to face a cross with joy. Where does a guy get a frame of reference for that? But of course, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of his faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. This verse is an invitation into our communion with Jesus. We watched him do it first, a giving of himself away for the glory of God and the joy of what he would receive in the church. And because we are so full to overflowing from that communion, we actually not only have more than enough to spend on another person, but we can give that away gladly because the more we give it away, the more we spend, the more we lay down and die, the more we take up our cross, the more we go unnoticed, the more we don't get credit for these things, the deeper I go into that communion with Jesus and receive from him all that I need and more so. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have all riches, all power, all grace, all authority, and you are lavish with those gifts. 
I pray that even as we sit here this morning, we feel ourselves being filled up to the brim and overflowing, that we are just looking for places to spend ourselves because we have more than enough. Don't let us be those in ministry who will do this begrudgingly, who will spend and keep records of all that we are doing for you, but instead let us rip up the receipts that are laughable in your presence and let us spend ourselves with joyful abandon as you have done for us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.